starting out. So we look up and, and I think it'll work. There we go. Again, we're going to show that Bible project sketch often because I want you to kind of get a grip of where we're at. And again, it, it went through that. If you get a chance or you missed it uh, the first time I showed it or forgotten it, go to BibleProject.com and look up for the video for Leviticus and you can watch it being drawn again. But you'll notice we're still here in this quadrant, but we're going to finish it. So we're in the offerings. You're not going to hear about any new offerings, uh, but in our journey, we've, we've been in the offerings and covered all five of them, burnt, grain, peace, purification, and restitution. And we've seen them, and I want you to realize that, through the eyes of the nation. So when Moses, and, and he would have written scripture, just like a New Testament author would have written scripture, uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit, this is what the Holy Spirit wanted to be recorded, recorded there. And you're going to see that as he started out with the offerings, he's touching on how the nation would see it, how an Israelite would view it. Um, we're now going to review all those offerings, but in a different order, not drastic, but slightly different. We're going to see peace move to the end and you're going to see the, the offerings laid out. And we're going to look at it from the perspective of the priest. This is now what the priest would be doing. Um, first five chapters tell the Israelites and now it's a command for Aaron and his sons. And the change in order is due to emphasis, though we're going to see instructions to the whole nation woven into some of this because the priests are going to be teaching the nation. Uh, they're going to be speaking for God. As you notice, the thing, they represent God to the people and they represent the people to God. But there's some interesting components where the priests offer sacrifices as well. And the rules and regulations from God are changed because, and we'll talk about this, the priests need to recognize that they aren't God. They represent God to the people and that they're also human in need of atonement. So you're going to see that as well. Uh, there was a gentleman, uh, Samuel Schultz, and he kind of walked through uh, as a summary, these offerings. And I want to walk through it briefly with you. And the reason is I want to remind you of these offerings because as we walk through with the priest, sometimes they repeat what the offering is. Sometimes it's just instructions for the priest. Sometimes they expand on what needs to be done. And so we're going to walk through uh, first the burnt offering. It was offered daily, morning and evening. Uh, they were completely consumed on the altar. It symbolized the daily renewal of Israel's full consecration to God. It, it is this seeing things from God's perspective and, and acting out from that point. The grain offering was brought along oftentimes with the burnt offering. It was an act of dedication. The worshiper acknowledged that God was the source of material blessing. Each time the Israelite brought his grain offering in worship, he acknowledged that God was his savior and king who had entrusted him with the material things of daily life. I love the cereal offering the grain offering, the meal offering. They call it sometimes the meat offering, but it's not meat. It's all grain. And that offering really talks about what we spend the majority of our life doing, and that's working. And it represents their work, their material wealth to God. Then you come to the sin offering and it provided purification. And that's a critical connect point. When you see sin offering, you're thinking purification. I want to encourage you, and I can't quite pick out where it is in Isaiah. I've been reading through Isaiah in my personal reading time. Whatever plan I'm on has, has me in Isaiah right now and Ephesians and reading through Psalms and Proverbs. And I was reading Isaiah, and I'm reading about what Christ did in light of what we've learned about the offerings. And it is unbelievable how 
much deeper it goes, how much you understand between what was paid and what is purification and how you realize it's two different offerings here that come together in Christ. And so I would encourage you, uh, reading through Isaiah is a beautiful opportunity. I actually am looking forward to doing a study of Isaiah. Uh, it's quite, quite the book, um, but read through it. There's just so much beauty connected to it, and you're going to understand Isaiah better as you understand Leviticus uh, and those offerings. Keeping going, it was blood was sprinkled to purify the priests as well as the altars where the offerings were presented. And the blood sprinkled is, is critical. And you're going to see regulations to the blood. And he's going to emphasize the blood. And when we talk about without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sins. And you recognize the shed blood of Christ and the significance that is there. A holy God could not dwell in surroundings defiled by unclean, uncleanness and people in places were vulnerable to defilement and pollution by sin. They had to have cleansing. You will be made as white as snow. You're thinking purification. When he's paid for us, he's paid the price for our sin. You're thinking restitution or guilt offering. That gave the reparation of rights or property to God or man. The guilty Israelite was able to restore his relationship with God and man and be assured of the forgiveness of his sins. Why? Paid with the guilt offering or the trespass offering or the restitution offering or reparation offering. There's a lot of different words people use for it. And then you come to the peace or fellowship offering, which was an optional and voluntary offering. So sin and trespass or purification and reparation were done consistently, but they weren't morning and evening. They weren't specified as daily offerings. Burnt, daily offering, morning, night. Cereal, morning and night. And there's implication that the priests would have offered it for themselves, a cereal offering, morning and night from their ordination on uh, after that. Then you get to purification, reparation. They were consistently done. Every Israelite was required to do them, but they weren't necessarily marked for every day. And you'll see them show up at the Day of Atonement again. We'll be talking about that. And then you come to fellowship or peace offering, and this is completely voluntary. It was a festive and joyous occasion, the most festive of all the sacrifices. After the worshiper and the priest had shared in the offering, the worshiper and his family and friends enjoyed a festive meal in the sanctuary area. And as we remember from last week or two weeks or three weeks ago, whenever it was, this, this was a celebration of God's presence. And so when we get into what the priests do, they're going to be talking about cleanliness and eating it as a person who wasn't defiled. And if you were defiled and you partook of this offering because you would be eating it in God's holy presence, you would be cut off from the people. And that's not just kicked out of the club, that's divine judgment is poured on you. And so there was a seriousness that surrounded this, but it was the offering that people rejoiced the most. So now we dive into the priest's perspective and, and what we're gonna see is we're gonna walk through these in that order. We're gonna start with the burnt offering and there's, the focus is a little different, and it starts with the perpetual burning and the regulations for cleanup. So if you have reading number one, apparently I went the wrong way, so I'm good with technology. It's catching up. There we are. It's slayed out a little different. So the perpetual burnt offering, if you don't mind turning the mic on and doing reading one, and we'll kind of look at that, and we're going to just kind of go through with the reading and then talk through it and then do another reading so once you see green, you're good. There you go. And you can just leave it on. 
The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the law of the burnt offering. The burnt offering shall be on the hearth of the altar all night until the morning, and the fire of the altar shall be kept burning on it. And the priest shall put on his linen garment and put his linen garment undergarment on his body. And he shall take up the ashes to which the fire has reduced the burnt offering on the altar and put them beside the altar. Then he shall take off his garments and put on other garments and carry the ashes outside the camp to a clean place. The fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not go out. The priest shall burn wood on it every morning, and he shall arrange the burnt offering on it and shall burn it that the fat of the peace offering. Fire shall be kept burning on the altar continually. It shall not go out. This, and I want to link to something. This fire that's on the burnt offering was started by God himself. Leviticus 9.24 says, And there came a fire out from before the Lord and consumed upon the altar the burnt offering and the fat, which when all the people saw, they shouted and fell on their faces. So this perpetual fire carries multiple implications. Uh, It spoke potentially of God's continual presence, continual burning that would never go out. And watchfulness. So the idea that God was there, he was present, and that's something we carry today, right? We should know and understand God's presence. He is here, and it was a constant reminder to them of their constant need for atonement. Why does the fire on the burnt offering need to stay lit? Because they need to perpetually give what? Burnt offerings. They need atonement. They need purification. They need restitution. And so when you see this fire constantly burning and you realize the priest is there and they have to keep this fire burning all night long, all day long. And then you understand, and I put Hebrews 12, 29 states this, for our God is a consuming fire. So we see links to God like in the fire. How did he lead Israel? A cloud by day and what? Pillar of fire by night. And so this is not, It's not outside the realms of understanding who's there. But I put as a question here, how aware are we of God's presence and the reality of his atonement for us? Because that's what they're touching on here, right? Now, as you move forward, so you see this perpetual burning. When you're constantly burning, if you want to keep a fire bright, what do you have to get rid of? The ashes have to go. And so these offerings created ashes and the process for removal was detailed. I don't know if you picked up on it. The priest needs to be in linen clothing, which represented purity. So this is the clothing for the priest. They will wear linen garments against their skin, linen garments on the outside. And God gave these details for a reason because it represents purity. And when we come into his presence, it is to come into his presence with holy, not common Things on, And so as the priest was removing the ashes from the burnt offering, remember what was next to it. And I didn't put that drawing up here, but hopefully you can envision it. There was these a square and then squares and squares, but there's one circle in there and it was called the ash pit. And so they would take the ashes out and put it in the pit. When they did that, they would be dressed in their priestly garments. They are dressed in pure clothing. Why? Because they're handling the offering and what's left over. Now, the ash has to go somewhere. And so after removing the ash from the altar to the pit, 
next to it. They would change their clothing into common clothes and they would take the ash from the pit and they would carry it outside the camp. Did they dump it in the woods? No, to a clean place. And so suddenly you have a connection here. One, you don't wear the holy priestly garments to do a common quote unquote task. You switch into common clothes, but you're handling something that was burned on the altar. And so you carry it outside of the camp and you put it in a clean place. Notice the detail is to not confuse the common with the holy. As the priest removed the ashes from the altar, they're in priestly garments. When they moved the ashes outside of the camp, they are in common clothes, but the ashes were brought to or unto a clean place. I put a note here. We too often make our Savior common. Our buddy that hangs out with us. And, and if we're going to learn from Leviticus, and I want this to drive in, you see the detail that's there. And an unsaved person will read God's detail and they think God is petty. They think God is being difficult, that God is being oppressive. But God is being detailed because he's holy. And he cannot be in the presence of uncleanliness or uncleanliness. And so he has instituted these rules for the Israelites so they understand the magnitude of his holiness. We are to learn from Leviticus. We, this is not something God did because he was practicing something. And then all of it, oh yeah, by the way, forget all that. That was a game we played. And now it's over here. A lot of people kind of look at the Old Testament that way. God in his infinite wisdom has set this up on purpose this way. This, there's a reason for this. And we're supposed to learn from this. And, and one of the things we'll see in our culture is the making our savior Kahneman, our, our buddy that hangs out with us. He's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. Yes, but he is our savior and as such should be revered, honored, loved, and exalted, not dragged down to your favorite watering hole. And I know every redneck and country bumpkin and country music lover thinks that those songs where Jesus is there and he'll come with me to this place and sit by me. And I hear, I, look, I have people close to me that bring it up and they want to know if there's some significance to it. There's no significance to it. If anything, it's the most reprobate song someone could sing, not the other way around. Want to know why? Because we're trivializing our Lord and we need to stop thinking that those songs and that, that, that mentality captures anything about a real relationship with Jesus Christ. You don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ and think he's dragging down to go partake in whatever you're doing. He is all present. He's not not where you are at. <laughs> so the idiocy of bringing him along, that statement is exactly that because he is all present. But the trivialization of God and specifically Jesus Christ to this buddy hanging out your wingman status is, is absolutely um, horrific, actually. It's, it's not good. It represents what's gross in our culture, actually. Because that's not how we're to see our Savior. Leviticus makes that perfectly clear. If a priest has to put on linen clothes to take the ash off the altar into the ash pit and then change into common clothes to get the ash out of the ash pit and carry it outside the camp, and when they go outside the camp, they have to find a clean spot, not a dirty spot, right? And if you're thinking, what does it mean by finding a clean spot? Think of two million people and no bathroom system and think about the need to find a clean location. That you wouldn't just dump the ashes from these altars and offerings anywhere 
that anyone could have gone, but instead you are diligent as a priest to find a clean place to remove it. The application is clear to us. Stop making your Savior like you. He came as a man to die for us. There's components of connection, fully God, fully man, but stop dragging God down to your unholy common level. Instead, we're called to what? Be holy as he is holy. Think about that for a second. Not bring God to my commonness, but instead strive to be like Christ in his holiness. Actually, not in his humanity. He came as a human to be the sacrifice for us. This is a complete giving on his part, planned from the beginning of time. We're called to not view him as common and to not trivialize our Savior, but instead to exalt him. Let's make sure that in our lives and in our culture, and I know, and I say, I don't think anyone is intending bad by certain songs and certain limericks and certain statements. It's just be discerning as a believer and recognize that that does not exalt him to where he belongs. It makes him common. And we spend an inordinate amount of time trying to drag Jesus down so that people can connect with him. But that's not a real relationship with Christ. They can connect to him, most importantly, where he's at, as their Savior, as their Lord, as their Redeemer, as God. And so Leviticus is going to drive us there. So here's the burnt offering. There's the perpetual burning. There's this idea of not mixing holy with common. It's, it's revering our God, exalting our God. It's understanding that our God is holy and we are not. And it's following what God says so we can live for him as he's commanded us. And then we move to what they often say is the most holy offerings. And right away, you'll find a commentator that's going to go off into the woods on this one. Like, oh, now here's the important offerings. No, by most holy, it means that what was designated for consumption is for the priest only. So an Israelite did not consume part of the cereal offering. An Israelite did not consume part of the sin offering. The Israelite did not consume part of the trespass or restitution offering. The Israelite did consume part of the peace offering, fellowship. So when it says these most holies, did the priest consume anything from the burnt offering? What happened to a burnt offering? Burn up. So it did, that it skin was sold, that would be used, but they're not eaten unless there was a weird priest out there chewing on leather. But, I, I, you know, hopefully not. Um, yeah, jerky. <laughs> That's some rough jerky right there. Cow skin jerky. Um, but you, you think about this. So now we're turning the corner to these three that are coming up. Um, I even put the remember the burnt offering, they kept only the skin. And then the list begins now, and we're going to look at the cereal offering. And if you have reading number two, you get to jump up. I think the mic is still on and do that one. Talk about the cereal offering. And this is the law of the grain offering. The sons of Aaron shall offer it before the Lord in front of the altar. And one shall take from it a handful of the fine flour of the grain offering and its oil and all the frankincense that is on the grain offering and burn this as its memorial portion on the altar, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. 
and the rest of it Aaron and his sons shall eat. It shall be eaten unleavened in a holy place. In the court of the tent of meeting they shall eat it, and it shall not be baked with leaven. I have given it as their portion of my food offerings. It is a thing most holy, like the sin offering and the guilt offering. Every male among the children of Aaron may eat of it, as decreed forever throughout your generations from the Lord's food offerings. Whatever touches them shall become holy. Again, of the grain offering with the emphasis being on the priest's right to eat it. Uh, it's done without adding leaven to it and it's eaten in the area of the tabernacle. So there is regulation tied to it. So if someone's consuming this and it's for all the sons of Aaron, but where are they eating it at? They're going to be eating it at the location of the tabernacle. So most likely the person who's eating it is someone who's working and working the offerings and it's there in the tabernacle doing that work because they're not taking it out and eating it outside of there. Uh, it was a clear reminder and connection for the priest of God's provision. Now, in light of that, when the priests brought a grain offering, things were different. So our attention is turned now. And that's why when you're at the end of chapter seven, you're going to hear a summary and it's going to list six offerings. But one is an ordination offering. And that offering is this is the priest's cereal offering. So whoever is reading number three, if they want to pop up and do reading number three. Listen as he's reading. I want you to notice what they're not doing with this offering. So now priest is coming in your mind. You can see it when they're ordained is when it started. And there's implication that it continued through the rest of their life. Yes, sir. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, this is the offering that Aaron and his son shall offer to the Lord on the day when he is anointed. A tenth of an ephah of fine flour is regular grain offering, half of it in the morning and half of it in the evening. It shall be made with oil on a griddle. You shall bring it well mixed in baked pieces like grain offering and offer it for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. The priest from among Aaron's sons who is anointed to succeed him shall offer it to the Lord as a decree forever. The whole of it shall be burned. Every grain offering of a priest shall be wholly burned. It shall not be eaten. What do you do with the grain offering from the priest? Burnt completely. You don't eat it. It takes place when the priest is ordained. We're going to see that in the upcoming chapters. When we see 8 through 10, we're going to watch, um, we're going to watch Aaron participate in this. We're going to see the fire come, 924, on the altar. That's God's perpetual fire that they're going to keep going. And by the way, when they were moving around, they kept it going. So as they're marching, a priest was making sure that fire doesn't go out. That fire stayed lit the whole time. And what you're going to notice is that this whole thing is completely burned up. There's a daily nature that comes to the sacrifice, both the burnt and the cereal. And it's spoken of in Hebrews, uh, contrasted with Christ, the great high priest, who did not need to continue to offer himself on the offering. So as the priest is ordained, and depending on, on, depends on the outlook from a commentator, but the implication that you see as you work through their history is that the priest are offering a cereal offering day and night. This is part of the burnt offering and they're bringing that there that's completely consumed. Hebrews 7, 27 states concerning Christ who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once when he offered up himself. 
And Hebrews is going right to Leviticus and he's saying, look, those priests ordained, set apart for God, representing God to the people, yet every day they had to offer sacrifices for themselves. Every day they had to go because they weren't God. They were human. Yet Christ did not have to continually offer himself because once for all, it's finished. And, and here's the idea. Why, why emphasize the priest's cereal offering? Why come back to this ordination offering that then has a kind of continual effect in that priest's life? Because the priest needed to know his own need. They represented God to the people. And so that he never started to think of himself as God he would know his own need by the need to offer to God sacrifices. And I put not a bad reminder for us all to keep in mind. What is our tendency at times? And we use the word someone is self-righteous, right? And usually people who are self-righteous hurl that title at people who are also self-righteous and it's a perpetual insult they throw out there. But why, why do we need that? Is this God putting his thumb down on the priest saying you're not good enough? Not good enough? No, it's God, a holy God, letting someone know in his love that they need forgiveness. It is constant reminder. We love to run from our need of a savior. People love to fixate on Christ's love and, and his love is unbelievable and we should be fixated on it. But we should never lose sight of what his love accomplished for us and never lose sight that it's because of us that he had to accomplish it. Because it's easy to start drifting away from need, from recognizing Christ. Um, 1 John 1, 9, everyone know that one? If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of your sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Surrounding it, 8 and 10, it talks about how you're sinful, 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 and you're a liar if you say you're not sinful. In other words, it's this daily reminder. And, and what about in our Christian life? Where, what is John driving us to in the New Testament? To have a, a, a reminder daily to connect consistently with the reality of our need. We're sinful and we needed our Savior. And so we're reminded to confess, to repent and confess. And so you're going to see some of the ideas, the, 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 the implications of Leviticus, you carry over into the New Testament where we need to, as God's people, Remember and confess sins and deal with sin. Now, this is where the order starts changing because in the first part, it's burnt cereal and then goes to peace. But here we're going to move. Instead of going to peace, we're going to go to the purification or the sin offering. And whoever has reading number four, they get to pop up there and do that. Uh, that's chapter 6, 24 through 30. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the law of the sin offering. In the place where the burnt offering is killed, shall the sin offering be killed before the Lord. It is most holy. The priest who offers it for sin shall eat it. In a holy place it shall be eaten, in the court of the tent of meeting. Whatever touches its flesh shall be holy. And when any of its blood is splashed on a garment... You shall wash that on which it was splashed in a holy place. And the earthenware vessel in which it is boiled shall be broken. But if it is boiled in a bronze vessel, that shall be scoured and rinsed in water. Every male among the priests may eat of it. It is most holy. 
but no sin offering shall be eaten from which any blood is brought into the tent of meeting to make atonement in the holy place. It shall be burned up with fire. Look here, this shares a lot of the details we've seen in chapter 4. What, what is involved in a purification offering? Uh, but what they do is get very specific about the blood. What is the emphasis on the purification offering? It's zeroing in on cleansing, which is zeroed in on blood. Uh, the blood as it purified the altar, as it purified the sacred things. Uh, and you notice if it's spilled on a garment, it's cleaned where? In a holy place. It's not like, oh, bummer, I got some blood on. We'll make sure, make sure the old lady takes care of that. Or the kids, they got to scrub that out in the river. No, you clean it right there. It's taken care of because that's holy. The principle of the holy and common rises up again here. So if you boil the sin offering meat in an earthen, earthen, you know, something made out of clay, after you're done boiling it, you break it. Because it's impossible to get all the residue out of all the cracks. And you might say to yourself, well, why don't they just use that same earthen jar for all the sin offerings? Because then it wouldn't be mixed with the common. Well, it becomes old when it's in the cracks and therefore is no longer acceptable in that sense to be offered again. And so when you have an earthen jar, uh, you better not make a new one because you're, you're throwing it away. So the illustration is, is the common and holy come together. That jar has to be destroyed. It cannot be used for anything else and it cannot be used again for the purification offering. However, if you use a brass pot, this is more expensive, yet with brass, can you clean it enough so it doesn't go into the pores of the, the metal, right? And so you can actually clean it, but they, they say that you need to scour it. It has to be scrubbed deep. I put deep, deep cleaned. And the whole point here that he's highlighting for the priest is the blood of the sacrifice was put in emphasis there. If this blood was offered in the sanctuary, and do you remember when the blood was sprinkled in the sanctuary? For who was that done? Priest? Or the congregation, right? And the congregation didn't just mean the people. It meant the, the leadership, this overarching, not a tribal leader, not the head of Simeon's tribe and not this one, but the people that were brought forward who would have helped lead. Think elders. I say think Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin wasn't in existence then, but think the elders that would rule who were, who were ordained to that with Moses, right? To have elders. That was those people. And when they would sin, they'd had to bring a bull. And when it was killed, the blood was sprinkled in the tabernacle. And God is reminding the priest, when you sin and you have to sacrifice something, when the congregation sins and needs to be sacrificed and you bring the blood into the tabernacle, that offering is burned completely. It's a sacrifice for a priest or a congregation, not a layperson or one individual. Then the sacrifice is burned. But the sacrifice blood was always sacred. And I put here, how sacred do we see Christ's blood and think his life? Because where is the life? It's in the blood. How sacred is his life shed for you? How dignified, how set apart. And, and you're going to see something and I think it permeates our culture. We are a very casual culture. We become trivial. We become demeaning, maybe not on purpose, but Satan surely has led us there if it's not just our own fault. And so I put how trite are we about God's blood, about his sacrifice? 
about the life altering for us redemption. Now the conversation shifts. I'm going to go uh, to the reparation trespass offering. I list the trespass and sin because that's how it's going to oftentimes be titled in, in the Bible on, on top of there. And so whoever has reading number five, if they want to pop up and do number five, that'd be great. Now we're looking at chapter seven, verses one through 10. And we're looking at the trespass. And this is going to get into some more details. It's going to get a little bit broader or, or beyond what it was even before. This is the law of the guilt offering. It is most holy. In the place where they kill the burnt offering, they shall kill the guilt offering, and its blood shall be thrown against the sides of the altar. And all of its fat shall be offered, the fat tail, the fat that covers the entrails, the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins, and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. The priest shall burn them on the altar as food offering to the Lord, and it is guilt offering. Every male among the priests may eat it. It shall be eaten in a holy place. It is most holy. The guilt offering is just like the sin offering. There is one law for them. The man's burnt offering shall have for himself the skin of the burnt offering that he has offered, and every grain offering baked in the oven, and all that is prepared on the pan or a griddle shall belong to the priest who offers it. And every grain offering mixed with oil or dry shall be shared equally among all the sons of Aaron. The trespass offering and up to about verse seven, it sounds all trespass. And then it starts linking to the sin offering. And then it starts talking about the cereal offering. And we start getting some regulations on how we deal with the most holy offerings, how all three of them are to be handled. And you might say, man, but we've seen that already. Why does God repeat himself? Emphasis. It's important, right? We need to remember. I think the Israelites were a lot like us. They're forgetful. Heather and I were chatting uh, with a couple that's getting married, and, and uh, obviously everyone wants their people to turn off their phones, right? No one wants to be in the middle of their vows, and, the, and grandma's calling someone else out there and talking on the phone. So they always wonder, how, how do you get people to turn off your phones? And we always tell them repetitively. So you have a sign outside, and you have a sign in the door, and you have a sign in the bulletin, and you, just, you constantly remind people, hey, you want to turn off your phone? Because we need to hear things over and over to get it, right? In school, why do kids go through those spelling lists? Why do they repeat those so often? And then they become adults and become poor spellers again, right? Because kids can spell and adults can't. Repetition helps us, and God's repeating something because it's important for emphasis, and so that we... Remember it. Now, this offering comes with a few more details. It covers a little more than just the retribution, the section of it. But when we look at this offering, it, it reminds us again, the worshiper killed it where the burnt offering was slain. It reminds us that the animal comes in and it's killed. And, and remember, that was a critical part early on, understanding who killed the offering. The worshiper, the Israelite did, hand on the animal, connecting to this sacrifice. You take the life. The priest collects the blood. The blood is placed around the altar. The fat, the entrails, they're burned. And then the priest receives the meat like the sin offering. And then it goes on and says it's going to cover other offerings. Who got the meat? The attending priest, the one doing the work. Who got the baked grain offering? The attending priest. Who got the flour grain offering? 
That was shared with all the priests. And we remember that when we talked about the cereal offering. Now we know which cereal offering is shared and which cereal offering is just for the person who took care of it. Now, there's a lot of speculation. One commentator said um, there's less baked goods than fine flour, and that's why they did that. Another commentator responding to that commentator says, no, they're not right. That's not the reason why. The fact is we don't completely understand the implications why that is, but that's what God said. There is order There is a system in place there. Fine flour could be baked today, tomorrow, or the next day. Something that's already baked, if you've got real baked goods without all the chemicals in them, baked goods go bad after a while, right? This is a test. You go to Paul's Bakery in Fredericksburg and buy some donuts. Eat them day one, day two, all the way to day five. And there's a drastic difference between day one and day five. And if you go to Paul's Bakery, you get donut uh, donut holes filled with jelly, and you bring them over here. And you drop them off at the church as you're offering and make sure that's, <laughs> that's set aside for Theron and Kenny as we'll do it. I promise to give Theron one out of 50. That's, you know, he, he doesn't need, he's young. I need all that sugar and, and jelly that's there. But you, real baked goods go bad after a while. So you, you can look at the practical side of it and maybe it's something that wouldn't carry over. And so they say the attending priest would eat it. Uh, maybe it was, there was less of it. We don't know, but God gave rules tied to what goes on there. Uh, God repeated the instructions. And as you guys have already said, that makes it worth noting for ourselves because the payment of sin is a reality. And the restitution or reparation offering, the trespass offering was about payment. When you read in Isaiah and it talks about him making payment for us, 53, but you talk about making purification, that's the blood purifying. When you see a trespass or a payment being made, that is bringing you right back to the reparation offering. So as you walk through the New Testament and you talk about cleansing, purification, when you see, when you see payment, the wages of sin is what? Death. It's a payment. So when Christ dies on the cross, it's the reparation offering for us. And what I think is beautiful is there's not just one offering, but you see all these offerings pointing to the Messiah who's going to fulfill that requirement. But the payment for sin is a reality. It is real and should be remembered. And it should be a remembered cost. Reparation reminds you that sin costs something. There's a payment associated with it that required redemption and redemption links to the word for ransom. Ransom is a payment you would pay to free somebody. So I pay you a ransom. If you're on the the auction block as a slave being sold, you would ransom a slave. You would pay and now you freed that because you paid the price that's there. And so anytime you think about Christ and his sacrifice, the wages side of things reminds you of cost. It drives us to understand payment right there. Now, purification is cleanliness, being cleaned, and payment is cost, and that's how you think it costs. And I put it as as a note, never undervalue your redemptive price. It costs something. Don't diminish that. Now, the conversation now shifts to one of the favorite offerings, the peace offering. If someone has reading number six, if they want to grab that and read it over there, uh, this is going to carry us to, um, as one commentator notes, the peace offering could have been the only time some Israelites ate meat, depending on how wealthy you were. And it was always a joyous occasion, uh, regardless of that or not. And one link to another recommendation. 
And this is the law of the sacrifice of peace offerings that one may offer to the Lord. If he offers it for a thanksgiving, then he shall offer it with the thanksgiving sacrifice, unleavened loaves mixed with oil, unleavened wafers smeared with oil, and loaves of fine flour well mixed with oil. With the sacrifice of his peace offerings for thanksgiving, he shall bring his offering with loaves of leavened bread. And from it he shall offer one loaf from each offering as a gift to the Lord. It shall belong to the priest who throws the blood of the peace offerings. And the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offerings for thanksgiving shall be eaten on the day of his offering. He shall not leave any of it until the morning. But if the sacrifice of his offering is a valve offering or a freewill offering, it shall be eaten on the day that he offers his sacrifice. And on the next day that remains of it shall be eaten. But what remains of the flesh of the sacrifice on the third day shall be burned up with fire. If any of the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offering is eaten on the third day, he who offers it shall not be accepted. Either shall it be credited to him. It is tainted. And he who eats of it shall bear his iniquity. Flesh that touches any unclean thing shall not be eaten. It shall be burned up with fire. All who are clean may eat flesh, but the person who eats the flesh of the sacrifice of the Lord's peace offerings while an uncleanliness is on him, that person shall be cut off from his people. And if anyone touches an unclean thing, whether human uncleanliness or unclean beast or an unclean detestable creature, then and then eats some flesh from the sacrifice of the Lord's peace offerings, that person shall be cut off from his people. I want you to see the peace offering and we get into some details and the key details surrounding the priest. And it's something to keep in mind is the reason for offering it. Now, one commentator I read translates the word that we're seeing as thanksgiving as a confession offering. And I think the word thanksgiving <coughs> covers it well. I understand why he's thinking confession. Uh, you're con you make a confession of faith, right? You're, you're proclaiming something, so it's there. Uh, but it was, it was when you were coming for thankfulness, and this is highlighting God's character. When you're coming to give God an offering, maybe you were just gonna come because something he did being God you want to recognize and show your thankfulness or your confession of him as God. And what's interesting is when you brought it then, you had a list of breads to bring. And by the way, those weren't options, but they were a list that you would bring with your offering. So there was, in addition to that, you would bring those breads. And then on top of all that, if you were offering it as a Thanksgiving offering, you consumed that that day. There was no carryover. And some people mentioned that they did that so that the poor would participate because you had to eat all that meat, right? So you might go, um, we have that Peruvian chicken, right? And, and just imagine if there's leftovers and, and if the leftovers had to be eaten before we left the room, right? And we couldn't consume it all. You know, that's just terrible as a church. We should be able to consume all the chicken. But anyway, say we couldn't consume all the chicken. We could invite in people to come eat with us. And so some of the context of a Thanksgiving offering was by making it one day, it, it could drive them to be more inclusive, adding people to the meal because it has to all go away. Uh, there's a host of reasons why. One of, the, one of the reasons that we don't want to overlook is there's a distinguishing feature between a confession or Thanksgiving offering and the other ones. They're highlighting this offering, which required more food to be brought and was for an acknowledgement of God and his character and who he is. Because when you're partaking of the peace offering, you are celebrating God's presence. 
And as you're offering a Thanksgiving offering, you're, you're looking at God's presence, you're fixated on God's holiness, and you're thinking about God's character all tied together. And, and it may be needed to just distinguish this from other ones. There's a host of reasons. They're not spelled out in Scripture, so we can't dogmatically stake the ground and say this is what it is. I want to give you some of the potential reasons. If you're offering for completion of a vow or for another type of offering, just a free will, I'm so thankful about God, I want to bring this in, in the sense of just voluntary offering, we had an extra day to consume the meal. But understand this, and this is the critical part, because as we closed out that reading, it got into a bunch of rules, didn't it? If you're clean, you can eat it. If you're unclean, don't eat it. And if if it's unclean, you need to burn it. And if you eat it unclean, then you're separated from the people. There was a long list. And this offering celebrated God's presence there, very tangible. You ate it at the tabernacle area. You gave to the priest who ate it. and, And it was done right there. And the joy of being in his presence. And so often, as is done, the need to be clean is emphasized. Why was cleanliness important? Because God is holy. Don't forget that with Leviticus. God is holy. God is holy. Every time we're reminded of this. So if you're ceremonially unclean, you could not partake. And everyone understood and had the, the common sense to know it. As humanity, we revolt against that. Like, it's my fault that my brother died right there and I was next to him. And now I can't eat the meal offering, the meat offering. I can't participate, right? It's not my fault. And uncleanness, as you will know, we'll talk about it in the Bible Project. There's, it's not that you're sinful, it's just you're unclean. Certain things made you unclean. But if you're going to acknowledge God's holiness, then you don't partake of this feast because you know you were made unclean by something. We're going to watch Aaron lose two sons and God's not going to let him mourn his sons. Because he's in the process of ordination and God's going to say no. And you'll notice something. Aaron's not the, the most stalwart <laughs> character in the Old Testament, but recognize there's some times that he did some things that showed his dedication to God. And I think that's one of them. Because he doesn't break and he knows he's recognizing God's holiness in that moment. There's some tough things because God is holy and that's not something we brush aside for the convenience of ourselves. We tend to brush God's holiness aside when it becomes inconvenient for us. We want to fudge God's holiness because we want to make it fit our life, our society, our culture, or what it may be. The the Israelite had no inkling to do this. Now, when you see them go away from God, as you read through the Old Testament, you see them wander away. You're going to see even King Uzziah is going to try to do something he knows he shouldn't do. And they're going to wander from God. They, they start being casual about God's holiness and his exclusiveness. And they pay the price. But there's no reason for it. Leviticus makes it perfectly clear to them, God's holy. And you don't make his holiness a convenient characteristic to weave in and out when you feel like it. And so these things showed respect for God's holiness. It takes serious what God takes serious. And that's my question. Are we taking serious what God takes serious? I was at a conference and it was a question came up and it was about social justice. And the, the, the guy answering it uh, it was actually John MacArthur. So listen to him. And he says, I'm not going to have society tell me what justice is. God will tell me what justice is. Because our view of justice as humanity changes all the time. 
I mentioned it on Sunday. What once was an acceptable term is now a term you get canceled over. What once was okay is not okay. Why? Because our, 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 our culture is fickle and sinful. I will get what is right from God. I will take serious what God takes serious. And look, we'll be busy doing that. We don't need to add to it. But we definitely don't need to take away from it. Now, I want to move, and I have very limited time, and so I'll talk super fast. I know you guys like that. We're going to go into what I call the reminders. Uh, if that's here, we're going to talk about reminder uh, on the peace offering. So if someone can read, I might have jumped. I missed the, yeah, that's right. I didn't swipe it for the last person. We're going to go into reminder, no fat, no blood, reading number seven right there uh, to dive into it. Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel saying, you shall eat no fat of ox or sheep or goat, the fat of an animal that dies of itself and the fat of one that is torn by beast may be put to any other use, but on no account shall you eat it. For every person who eats of the fat of an animal of which a food offering may be made to the Lord shall be cut off from his people. Moreover, you shall eat no blood whatever, whether of fowl or of animal in any of your dwelling places. Whoever eats any blood, that person shall be cut off from his people. Let's keep it simple. Were you allowed to eat fat? No. Why not? God said, don't eat it. But what, what about the offering? What is always burned up for God? Fat. Did the priest ever eat the fat? You didn't eat the fat. If you think about E, it's Eli's, right? Eli's sons. They would get their portion while it was in the pot and it would come up and it would have fat on it. It would it'd be, it'd be unacceptable what they would take away and they would tell the people you have to do this. Of course, they did get killed in a battle for that. So they paid the price of it. They, they made common what was holy, but you don't eat the fat because it's offered to God solely. It's set apart for him. Now, if an animal was killed by something else or died of natural causes, it could not be offered. It's not, it's not, it's not acceptable. Why? It links to death. Death links to impurity, right? That's that drawing from the Bible project helps us understand that. We're going to get into that because if you touch a dead body, you'd be, you'd be unclean for a certain period of time. You couldn't offer it. There it sits, dead animal. What do you do with this dead animal? And God says, you can use the fat, but don't eat it. You can make a candle out of the fat. You can make something that, you know, oil, grease, whatever you're going to do out of the fat, but you don't eat the fat. And then he goes on, never eat the blood. Why? Well, the life was in the blood. The blood purified. The blood was shed on their and our behalf. And the repercussions were serious. You were cut off from the people. As one commentator noted, direct divine judgment, even death. And what you have to understand is it was no minor offense and no one took it lightly at all. What God said, they understood was serious. And then that same question, but do we take God's serious commands lightly today? Does God's instructions carry the correct weight in our lives? As he makes clear what we should do, how many times we say, wow, be so literal. Don't be so specific on that. Why? Because it's our pet thing and we don't want it to be messed up. And then we close out with another connect to the peace offering. And it's going to be a look at now the priest portion. So whoever I was reading number eight, if they pop up this one, I just want you to kind of recognize God is circling back 
to remind the people, because the peace offering was great, you're eating, right? You get to go out, that the priest was to be a part and have a portion of this. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel saying, whoever offers the sacrifice of his peace offering to the Lord shall bring his offering to the Lord from the sacrifice of his peace offering. His own hands shall bring the Lord's food offerings. He shall bring the fat with the breast that the breast may be waved as a wave offering before the Lord. The priest shall burn the fat on the altar, but the breast shall be for Aaron and his sons. And the right thigh you shall give to the priest as a contribution from the sacrifice of your peace offerings. Whoever among the sons of Aaron offers the blood of the peace offerings and the fat shall have the right thigh for a portion. For the breast that is waved and the thigh that is contributed, I have taken from the people of Israel out of the sacrifices of their peace offerings and have given them to Aaron, the priest, and to his sons as a perpetual due from the people of Israel. This is the portion of Aaron and of his sons from the Lord's food offerings from the day they were presented to serve as priests of the Lord. Lord commanded this to be given them by the people of Israel from the day that he anointed them. It is a perpetual due throughout their generations. And here's a reminder to the people that the priests were supplied by God from their offering. Because notice what he says. They are going to take what's being given to me and I'm giving it uh, to them. It included a wave ceremony where the, the, the hands of the priest actually would come under the hands of the worshiper. They would move the breast toward the altar and back in a horizontal motion. And here depicts that the, the worshiper is voluntarily giving the offering and the priest sees how God has connected that gift to him, to them, and provided for them through him. That's a lot of words back and forth. And the idea is this. When you as an Israelite brought your peace offering and you did this wave ceremony and the priest's hands came underneath and it was to the altar and to back, it's to God and then given back to the priest. The whole ceremony depicted that this was a gift from God. God took from his portion and gave to them. Everything was a gift from God. And so all the movement that takes place reminds the priest and reminds the giver that this is a gift they gave to God who then has given it and provided for his servants. And everything is linked back to God. I put here, though, how voluntary are our gifts? And when you give them, do you see it as given to the Lord? Think about it for a second, because that was the whole point. I give my peace offering and I do this wave offering to the altar and I go back, me and the priest, hand in hand, back and forth. To depict that I gave to God and God has given. So I don't look at the priest and say, enjoy that breast right there and eat it up. And I thought, you're welcome. I fed that animal extra special for you to eat. No, that's not the case. Now think about how we give. And if we give to the Lord and I put a big or, or is it to the church organization where you can justify still holding on a bit? Think about it for a second. They gave to God and so they couldn't connect the gift back to the priest. God did that. 
And they understood that. That's the whole ceremony. The beauty of it was to be centralized as God. Now, as believers, we give to the Lord and, I'm, and we're supposed to be good stewards. We're supposed to be connected. So that's not, this is not a, hey, blindly and, and we, we have business meeting, we talk about it. But you'll be surprised how many people still have their hand on the dollar when it goes into the offering. Because they have links to it because it's not as voluntary as they make out to be. And because they don't give it to the Lord, they feel that they have control of it. See, if I think I fed the priest and expect the priest to make sure he takes care of me special because, hey, you're the priest. I, I got, I gave you, you got the, why wouldn't you help me out? Why not? I always make sure you're the attending priest and you get, you get my stuff. I take care of you. And you take care of me. You see the manipulative, we talked about this throughout the last one, the manipulative nature of the gift. That's not voluntary. That is manipulative. Then I put this other one. When we don't give it to the Lord, it allows us to excuse our less than voluntary attitude. What does the New Testament say about giving? God loves a what type of giver? Voluntary. This is what I, I want to give this. I don't begrudgingly. And when the peace offering came in, this was no offering that was done begrudgingly. This was joyous. This was a celebration. This was in God's presence. This was his holiness. I'm, I'm thanking him. I'm following up on a vow. I'm, I'm, I'm coming along and saying, I just want to give this to the Lord because he's the Lord. And it reminds us again, our heart and giving. A giving is an act of worship. Leviticus teaches us that. Can't run from that at all. That's how God views giving. Is it a responsibility? Is it a duty? We can link to that, but it's the wrong way to look at it. It's a privilege. It's an honor. It's worship. So as you walk in and you give to the Lord, how worshipful are you? Well, Leviticus has laid out exactly how you're going to give and tells you exactly how the attitude is. And they've got a whole ceremony to help you understand how you give voluntarily with no strings attached. And it closes again, and it's the closing reading here. It kind of summarizes it. It says, this is the law of the burnt offering, of the meat offering or cereal offering, and of the sin offering, and of the trespass offering, and of the consecrations, that is the priest cereal offering, and of the sacrifice of the peace offerings, which the Lord commanded Moses in Mount Sinai in the day that he commanded the children of Israel to offer their oblations unto the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai. And I put here, we see, we see here as Gordon Wenham notes, the scrupulous attention to detail and obedience to God's instructions were expected in priest and worshiper. Otherwise, the man who offered it would not be accepted. God wanted it done exactly as God said. I think we can make a few connections. I put here, how do we approach God in worship? On his terms, how is your heart supposed to be? This is critical. As these worshipers walked in, as they did their worship, uh, there's not a manipulative nature to this. There is worship. Thus, the worshiper would sacrifice there. I put, how seriously do we see our need? How self-serving is our praise and adoration? I think it's, I think emotions are wonderful. And I think that God created us with emotions and he wants us 
as we worship him to feel joy and adoration and, and exhilaration. But if you're coming to worship him or coming to sing to him or coming to cry out to him and it is about what you will feel afterwards, oh boy. You ever heard someone say, I just don't feel like worshiping? Has nothing to do with it. That's when worship gets real, doesn't it, sometimes? The seriousness of worship when I don't feel like worship, but I come and worship and I voluntarily, I overcome my emotions to worship. You see, the Israelite would know that you worship the Almighty exactly as the Almighty says, because they're very well aware that he was the Almighty. From God's laws and instructions, we all should understand that God is not slack in his standard or his holiness. And I put here as our closing thoughts, have we become casual where God has not? And if so, who dictates the direction we go? Us to God or God to us? These are all rhetorical questions that I hope you know the answer to. Let's keep in mind Hebrews 12, 28 through 29. And I've read 29, but I'm going to read 28 with it. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved. We are given. We are part, we are part of God's kingdom. Let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably. And here's how. With reverence and godly fear. And now the verse I've already read, for our God is a consuming fire. How does he want you to worship him? In reverence and godly fear. Why? Because he is a constant presence and we have a constant need of atonement. He is what? Leviticus reminds us he is holy. And so he is a consuming fire. So as one writer notes, too often spontaneity and lack of preparation is equated with spirituality. You ever had that thought like, oh, I'm just so... All of us, I think, all of us can fall prey to this. Leviticus 6 and 7 denies this. Care and attention to detail are indispensable to the conduct of divine worship. God is more important, more distinguished, worthy of more respect than any man. I'm going to put a parenthesis in my quote. Watch a football game. They leave the tunnel at a certain time, in a certain formation, and they stand there, and what do we 